This episode of AVXL is recorded on April 5th, 2019. We're going to talk about Samsung's Q900R8K. The reviews are coming in. TCL's got a new 75-inch 6-series TV. New LEDs are coming. Monoprice makes a bargain playing our headphone. Record Store Day, Apple's new TV service, at least what little we know. Google Stadia and quite a bit more all coming up on AVXL. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And we got a lot to catch up on, so let us fire it up. Do it. Our, on our exciting new recording day. Episode 101. Well, we should probably start, uh, you know, it was the year of 8K. It is. Whether you wanted it or not. At CES 2019. It was. Uh, neither of us feel any particular need to own an 8K TV. There is no 8K content. There's very little 8K content happening. Upscaling is impressive. The, with good. It, it can be. Well, upscaling. It's for, a challenge with that many pixels. It's a lot of pixels. Um, <laughs> 4X, the resolution of 4K. That's a lot of pixels. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> If you think about going from a 1080p monitor to a 4K monitor in terms of, oh, I have to go from a $200 GPU to a $600, $700 GPU, right. um, it may make more sense uh, when you start looking at how complex it is to take all of the 4K content on the planet or <clears throat> more likely 1080p content and scale it to the expedite up to 8K. Um, what's the words of our? Because Samsung's, I think you said uh, ratings has their official review of the Q900R. Yes. Out. You know, what was their thought? The ultra viewing angle technology, that's effectively an optical layer that's mm -hmm. on the top of the TV that helps improve the viewing sweet spot in terms of sitting off axis and it's still looking very contrasted and colorful. According to the ratings charts, it appears that using that optical layer does come at the cost of a slight loss of the color gamut. Okay. And in particular, I noticed that if you look at their charts, green isn't quite hitting the deep, rich saturations that were being achieved on, say, the 2018 QA and Q9 FN TVs. But we were talking about off-axis viewing, not no, straight-ahead Straight on spot measurements. View. This oh, really? is just, yeah, straight up. So, yes, they've taken a step forward with this ultra-viewing angle technology, but at a cost at least... At least for this year, it isn't quite the same green saturation, which also affects any any of the secondary colors that rely on that, particularly things like cyan, because that gets mixed with blue. And if green is pulled back a little bit and blue is still where it's supposed to be, that just equates to basically your cyan not quite making it all the way out either, as that is simply a mixture of those two colors. So the optical layer that makes it easier for the people in the cheap seats to the far left and far right to kind of see what's going on on the screen makes it a less awesome experience for the people in the sweet spot. Yeah, I'm now seeing where next year is going to go. <laughs> the improved color of our latest generation. Not only do we have wide viewing angle or ultra viewing angle, but now we'll also have maybe I perhaps feel... well in excess of DCI-P3, which in a, technically speaking, the new AK Q900R does not. Since that ultra viewing angle enhancement layer is also present on the new 4K 2019 right. Samsung Q80RA and the Q90RA TVs, I'm having a suspicion that those will also be similarly slightly not quite as punchy and green. And this is a layer that you know, if, if you've never 
for example, dropped a three thousand dollar television, as Robert and I had the experience of doing several years ago, than taking it apart. Oh on yeah, we may dropped, not realize. I've seen plasmas flip off tables. Oh, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, those it, are so heavy. It doesn't hurt any less. Doesn't doesn't help any TV doing. But we should point out there's, you know, you think there's like the, there's the backlighting and there's diffusion between the, probably between, depending on how the TV set, there may be like layers of diffusion between the backlighting and the, the LED screen or, or the case oh, yeah. I'm thinking of the plasma. And then there's usually several layers of stuff, big giant sheets of material uh, that do all sorts of fascinating optical stuff. And then on top of all that, right, they've got this new optical layer from Samsung that, well, we can't beat. You know, we can't beat them on the blacks yet until we get up to closer to 10,000 nits so that your eyeballs are so blown out that our dark gray looks like black. Um, I'm being semi-scientific here, but fundamentally accurate. The other challenge with competing with OLEDs is that you want the OLED super wide viewing angle. So they've kind of fixed part of the super wide viewing angle at the expense of overall color quality. A little bit. I sense there will be consternation in some of the big television roundups come June, July, August. I I think, you know what, will you notice this? Maybe if you were doing side-by-side comparisons. Right. It's going to be pretty tough. I would prefer that this TV, especially being a flagship for this year, took color, especially the color mm-hmm. gamut, further. And you know what, as a trade-off for having that improved viewing angle, it's kind of a back and forth, really, in terms okay. of, I'd, I'd love to have it all. And so I'd like it today, but it's just not happening quite yet. <laughs> just part of me is like, nobody should be buying an 8K television unless you want to buy another 8K television in a couple of years. It depends. It's like, look, if the size is what you're looking for, and I'm thinking for 8K, it's going to be the biggest screens, like 70 plus inches. Right. Easy. Whatever the bigger ones are. It's nice having that extra resolution. It makes okay. a more seamless looking picture, especially if the video processing can keep up and do a really good job of upscaling all your content that isn't 8K. Right. And But if you're like 55, 65 inches, is there any point to getting an 8K television at this, at prob- this stage? L- probably not. Okay. And considering that, I think the smallest one you could probably buy today is going to be 65 inches. Okay. So it, it's like, it's there. You're, if you want to live on the cutting edge and you, you want some of the features, perhaps, that the latest Samsung TVs will support, and perhaps that ultra viewing angle is going to be the deal breaker for you. It's like, I have to be able to set off axis a little bit and not have the picture totally <laughs> right. become washed out. Then this is going to be a great step up. For me, I love my color. I'll be really curious to see if if LG with their OLEDs have done anything different with the 2019 models in terms right. of where those primaries, the red, blue, and the green are hitting on that chart. It's nice to have too much color rather than not enough. You can always dial it back, but if the native gamut of a panel is X and it's like, well, you, you can turn those knobs all you want, and you're not simply going to get greater saturation out of it. And okay. That's something to be determined down the road. We'll see. I, I, I appreciate color, but at the same point, I'm mildly disappointed that green's not as punchy as it was. Considering that these TVs are also using quantum dot technology, mm-hmm. it's definitely doable. When and I'm watching Pole Dark, I want my green grasses. <laughs> and, and all of the mixed green colors as yeah. well. Especially things like cyan. If you're looking at like your your Caribbean ocean scenes and things like that. It's not going to be quite as impressive as it might be on some other TVs that do a better job with the color gamut using either Quantum Dot or or even with LG's case with their, their emissive technology and their OLED panels. Right. That can look damn good too and is generally, I think, a little more saturated than what I'm getting currently, at least out of the 20, 2019 Samsung flagship TVs. So you were looking at uh, uh, TCL 6 Series, um, the, the 75-inch television you know, we've kind it, of half suspected for a while, finally shows up. 
I want to say last year when they announced the 6 Series, at least the upgraded version of it, they had announced a 75-inch, right. but it just never showed up. And now, calling it a 2019 model, it is spec-wise very similar to the 2018 6 Series. But it gets you that 75 inches at a good price point. I want to say it's about 1500 bucks right now on Amazon. 1600 1600 and it's also using an enhanced LED called NBP Photon technology mm-hmm. for its wide color gamut instead of quantum dot. So when you're looking at the TCL 6 series, which is kind of like the bargain television still in a lot of ways, a 55-inch version of that's going to be $550. A 65-inch version is $819. Well, $819.99. So let's just call it $820. Uh, and then you are not quite doubling the cost of that television to $1,600 to get a 75-inch, which is, I think, why I have a projection screen. So I have a 100-inch screen. <laughs> the nice thing, at least with the TCL TVs, they are equipped with the Roku player built right in. It's yeah. a Roku platform, and that also includes support for at least streaming sources of Dolby Vision and HDR10. It's nice having all of that just built right, right into the TV. Generally, these TVs also have decent game modes as well for low latency. However, we talked about in a couple episodes ago that these TVs that are using these enhanced LEDs do have a characteristic of when a high contrasted object is moving on the screen, you can see something that effectively looks like color breakup. And I would like to hear if anybody actually sees that in games. I found it like with static graphics or anything, especially like a white object on the screen. And if you just moved your eyes and looked around the screen, you could see colored edges to that object. Or if the object itself is moving on the screen, it would just far more noticeable and something that was mildly annoying. But again, it, it's a good value, especially when you compare the, at least currently, the premium for the Quantum Dot equipped TVs that are out there. However, if you're looking for a big screen value, that damned 82-inch <laughs> Samsung NU8000, it's a 2018 TV. It is still out there and it hit 1919 bucks today. Wow. And that, it was like two grand, I, w- I want to say a week ago. And this is definitely its lowest price so far. If you really want a big screen TV, it's really hard to point anywhere else at that price point, especially when you get up above 80 inches. That just seems to be the price can skyrocket quickly on you. Something that gives you 4K with HDR streaming support, pretty decent light output. It's not going to be anything like a P-Series Quantum with its 2,000 nits of light output, but still... This is a damn good value for for a screen that's literally approaching something on the verge of, well, a, a projection setup, but with much higher contrast and brightness. Right. That I really like. If you're interested, uh, Costco does seem to have regular sales of that P-Series Quantum from Vizio. And it is only 65 inches, but that remains one of the best values out there, especially at that that sale price that's under 1500 bucks for a TV that can literally do 2,000 plus nits of light output, even in SDR. If you have a challenging room lighting situation, this TV will help. And it also supports HDR10, Dolby Vision, so on and so forth, with some cool streaming options built in. I like what Vizio's doing there as well. And if you just have to be on the bleeding edge of OLED, hey, LG C9 OLEDs have arrived. C9, the 2019 series, 2500, 3500 for the 55, 65 inch models. No deals yet. But Amazon briefly listed the 77-inch model for $40,000. Whoa. Might have been a joke, but it stayed up there for a few days. And I'm curious if somebody just had to have it. Like, I have to be the first. (laughs) I don't care what it costs. That's uh, Probably not, but you never know. That seems like a lot of money for that television. I have a feeling that they're they're 
may have only been like a handful of those initially available. So, you know, supply, demand, 40 grand, <laughs> boom. That's too, yeah, that, that, that was a little yeah, bit Yeah, that ridiculous. Vizio P-Series Quantum, you know, that's only 65 inches. Walk into any Costco that has it. Compare that side by side with anything else that's It's a good there. looking TV. It, it stands out and it's visually impressive. I really like that TV for the value. Oh, man. A bunch of interesting stuff going up on the streaming side of the universe, uh, to say the least. One of the things that uh, came out, Roku's now selling uh, premium subscriptions for HBO, uh, if that's... Uh, uh, is something you care about. For example, I get stars so I can watch the American Gods series oh, okay. through Amazon Prime. You know, now the Roku channel is adding HBO as a premium subscription through that. You know, and they haven't been doing the premium subscriptions for a really long time. I think it started in January and it started with Showtime, Stars, and Epics. I want to say there's an HBO button on my Roku remote. Yeah. I know there's a Hulu button. It and all depends on like what. Which year. Yeah. <laughs> which year it came out and who was paying to put so that button on there. This isn't saying that you use the HBO app on the Roku. This is just saying that if you want, right from the Roku channel, you can grab your latest and greatest HBO content if you'd prefer to do it that way. HBO's still getting the money. Yeah. Yeah. No, I you, you can do it. I, I've been neat. pretty exclusively Apple TV and, and started playing around with uh, an Android streamer lately. So I've, I have pulled the Roku out of the rotation. So I'm going to have to put the Roku back in rotation and take a look at that. Um, That's all I use. Oh, oh, my goodness. For many, many things. I missed the announcement uh, at the tail end of 2018 that HBO is finally doing the long awaited Deadwood movie. Cool. And I am a huge fan of the Deadwood series. Uh, those Blu-rays look absolutely stunning. The series looks absolutely stunning, period. But, uh, you know, The Sopranos is getting a prequel, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, and, of course, Game of Thrones is hitting on April 14th. And I think about this a lot because, as, of course, we had the Apple TV Plus announcement where Apple's going to finally gonna be generating a ton of content. We think, obviously, our friends over at Netflix have been producing a ton of original content. Amazon Prime is doing original content. These battles to establish fiefdoms and... I feel, I'm going to use feeling words in the group today, I feel I'm not ready to tell anybody to buy 8K. And I feel that, I think in two years, my combined total subscriptions for streaming services is going to start to look an awful lot like what my direct TV bill looked like before I dumped that. I'm very careful about adding new services. Yeah. It's literally stuff I know I'm going to use and I uh, use regularly. Yeah. And, and I try to limit it. Yeah. It's it's funny to watch that and then to sort of start pricing stuff out. Like, oh, if I do this through YouTube... Do you use a streaming I... TV provider? Not currently. Or just subscriptions for fixed content? It's uh, it's funny because we're... You know, my, my youngest turned seven and, you know, we're going up to Fort Bragg... Uh, Going to put him on the skunk trains. He loves going on trains. And there I'm, you go. I'm mentioning this because whenever we stay in a hotel, my children see television commercials on the hotel TV. Right. Um, now, that I don't miss. We started teaching them about asthmatizements uh, or asthmatizements, as my son used to say when he was much younger, uh, at a fairly young age to sort of identify that you know that's there to try to make you go buy stuff. It's always funny for me because I have been so concentrated on streaming service. Like I, I won't touch Hulu. Like I have no interest in dealing with Hulu because even if I pay money, I still have to watch ads. So delete expletive Hulu. Right. Um, I hear that. Because I have no tolerance left for it. So at this point between the kids and the, and working on the house and, and making the content, I don't really want to, I don't, I don't want to find myself with like an over the top, you know, direct TV subscription or even the YouTube but stuff. For, for a lot of people, I think, 
that have at least a basic internet connection. Yeah. The, the a solid like, internet connection. Even not, it, just a good, solid, a decent internet connection. Not for, I'm not talking 4K or anything right. like that, but the value of services like on the Roku platform, at least, they have a free channel right. with a ton of free content. And if some of that is ad supported, that's a great way just to, you know, get your fix without it costing right. an arm and a leg. Where I do pay is specifically to minimize commercials and and or to have access to specific content that's only available through one source like a la game of thrones and hbo yeah so i mean for me it's like you know a friend of mine's like you should get youtube tv and it's like i'm already thousands of years behind in all of the content i, I already used to watch regular watch. tv yeah. on cable and i'll be honest with you and i was picking and choosing right. trying to find the content i wanted there and i realized that 99 percent of it's just not anything I really care about. I prefer to, works. prefer to pay directly to who's providing that content and just get it to my eyeballs yeah. in the format and device I want to use. Yeah, I mean, the, the YouTube bundle's pretty good. If, you, if you're if you looking to get rid of cable TV and you, you've got a decent internet connection, like the YouTube bundle's looking really good. I think we're going to see a couple more of those. Um, PlayStation View. I'll always direct yeah. people toward that. That's one of the very best services I've used with a variety <laughs> of packages and pricing. I bring a console into the house, my wife will beat me to death. Oh, that, that app's available on many platforms. Really? Yeah. You can run that on a Roku. You can run that on just about... It's built into some TVs, but otherwise, if you have a PS4, it's going to look great on there. I learn something new every day. Oh, no. PlayStation View. Switching gears a lot. Um... My love for the Alva TT turntable from Cambridge Audio at CES aside, I am not a vinyl guy, uh, but I do love record stores, especially around here. We still have Amoeba Music and Rasputin Music, which is a great place to buy right CDs. Right down the street. Yeah. Uh, and also to buy used CDs, which I, I do a lot because I like having physical copies of the music. The 12th annual record store day is going to take place worldwide, literally everywhere but Antarctica. Well, I guess, yeah, Antarctica is the content, the, the, the continent they don't have record stores on, at least uh, as of, of 2019. But it's pretty cool. So this is the 12th annual Record Store Day, and it's kind of a celebration of independent music shops. And if you are lucky enough to have an independent music shop near you, you should uh, patronize it. You should give it your patronage. You shouldn't patronize it. That's not really where I was going with that. Um, do not mock your local independent music store. If you haven't been to a record store in a while, do yourself a favor, go up to recordstoreday.com, go to participating stores and search your zip code. Because one of the interesting things about that is I found a dozen, I, of course, you know, we're in the East Bay, you know, San Francisco's three miles that way, Oakland and Berkeley are three miles, five miles in the other direction. But there are literally probably a dozen uh, music stores, record stores, uh, CD stores I did not know existed. And that's pretty cool for me because I love, you know, you always find interesting stuff in most independent music stores. And uh, and I'm kind of excited to check a couple of those out. I'll probably hit Amoeba and Rasputin on record Wherever store the day. young people can go <laughs> in these college communities to tell me what's new and cool. Well, San Francisco is not a college community. It uh, has it, a college town. Or a, there are parts of it that are. There are parts of it that feel very college-y. Uh, there are parts of it that feel like, you know, stumbling into a heroin addict's front room, oh. um, you know, on a bad Sunday morning. But uh, I was just amazed to see how many there were. Uh, which kind of makes me really happy. And, but again, you know, this is a pretty heavily populated area and people yeah. like to spend money. So we probably have more near us than you have near you. But check it out. Uh, it's worth going to. If for no other reason, oftentimes, like the, I want to say the first record store day, like Metallica went to Rasputin oh. and hung out and signed stuff and talked to fans all day. So a lot of times bands will do stuff at their local record stores. So it's worth going to the, the I website. I think they've moved out of California since then, but. 
Who knows? Yeah. They were all living up in Marin <laughs> for a while. You know, that was a friend of mine had a very funny story about running into one of the members of Metallica. You know, like it tractor supply or some sort of you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. People need stuff. I know they need stuff, but it's still really odd when you see a you know. And a, for anybody visiting the Bay Area, I apologize in advance for the filth of our public transit systems. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bart in particular. Oh, and I you just, know, unreal. You know, it should be a full time job to help clean up those places. Well, also, you should never have cloth seats in public transportation. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The sponge you know, of life. <laughs> Shifting gears. Yes. <laughs> you are much more excited about Google Stadia than I am. I just thought it was really cool. I hadn't felt kind of giddy about any kind right. of game console slash hardware slash software announcement in a while. I mean, I love PC gaming. I love some console gaming. Right. Uh, this, in essence, I think the demo that Google presented was epic for a few reasons. It really will come down to the absolute performance of this system. Yeah. And I think a lot of it probably won't be ideal for every type of gaming, but it could be. And the beauty of it is, is that effectively Google is simply taking their data center, the power of their many, 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 many data centers and dedicating some of that to providing a PC game experience at, at 1080p or 4K right. resolutions commonly uh, up to 60 frames a second with plans to go to 8K 120 and beyond with HDR, blah, blah, blah. Right. Basically, any device or any video display that can receive that stream of up to, you know, 60 hertz, 1080p or, or 4K, whatever, can effectively become a game console. Their demonstration, your, phone, your, your, your tablet, your Chromebook, your, yeah. your, your seven-year-old PC, right. it, it, you could do 4K gaming on something like that if all the compute is done on the back end and it's simply streaming you the video in all its glory. Yeah. If you missed the Google Stadia announcement, you may be watch. familiar with OnLive, which got bought by Sony. But the idea is that the games are played on, you know, virtual servers with virtual graphics. Uh, they're not virtual, but essentially uh, they do a whole bunch of cloud computing to have the gaming PC is in the cloud, he says, while making the brackets with his fingers uh, mockingly, uh, but respectfully, because um, the cloud's pretty impressive these days. But the whole idea is that the, the hardware is part of massive computer farms and they do all the heavy lifting and then they punch out the frames rendered uh, over the internet to your device. And I just find it fascinating. In, it in is. In terms of just bringing a leveling effect to anyone who's maybe prohibited from entering right. the gaming style they want to do because of just the cost right. of a $500 game console plus a $70 or, game. Well, I and mean, this is also more about like, you know, I mean, ga I, I think of this as a replacement for a gaming PC, but you're right. Their, their point is like, you know, it's not about, you know, you can play badass PC games without a PC. You can play whatever titles they can get on this. Like the data center is your platform. That was the line development that came out of too. It. Watching the part of the presentation that dealt with just simply game development in terms of creating something like a massive multiplayer game, where right. say you could have a thousand, ten thousand people on the same server right. with that kind of hardware on the back end driving it all. In addition to the development in terms of having to deal with things like the variety of hardware that's out there for right. various platforms, including graphics and CPUs and everything like that, that can all be just homogenized into this yeah. one platform that lets them just get that out there. And everyone has a similar experience right. at your chosen resolution. And the fact that you can use something like a $29 streaming stick to have this experience yeah. with, with you know the appropriate internet connection 
the big questions for me will be things like latency in particular. That's that's what hurt Twitch online style gaming. Badly. That might it might not work, or it may be just as good. It really depends on the yeah. implementation and how it all rolls out. Highly recommend you watch like one of the. Uh, here's the entire two-hour presentation in five minutes yeah. versions of that Stadia announcement that are available online. And it, it's, it, it got me pretty excited. I like what I saw. It's interesting. When you look at some of the crazy numbers, I think the best gaming experience I can have at this point is to take, connect a PC to my projector and play in my living room because the surround sound and the screen is 100 inches and it's it's an amazing experience. It's, it's and now you can just plug the Roku streaming stick into the back of your projector well, and enjoy that. When they actually <laughs> ship the product. Yes. But, I mean, With it's, an appropriate game controller. Right. I mean, when you look at something like Fortnite, they've had 10.8 million players concurrently all running in Fortnite simultaneously. They've got like 250 million registered players. Like they, they picked up another 50 million players um, since the tail end of 2018, right? And that's that's like probably the one of the two or three most popular games on the planet right now. Google did a, a beta called Project Stream, which was playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey inside a Chrome browser. And that was basically their beta experiment to work on the technology was going to become Stadia. And it, you're right. The demo is pretty crazy because, you know, they started with like a, they called it the least powerful PC they could find. So Intel graphics, not much memory. That was a very funny demo. Then they took the game to a tablet and then they did Chrome OS and a Pixel Slate and then a Chromecast HD. They're like, use whatever keyboard you have, use whatever controller you have. The Stadia controller is a really interesting device. Uh, because essentially, it looks like the the, the hybrid like offspring Xbox. of yeah, yeah, like an Xbox controller and with a little yeah, that bit seems of, to be a good design yeah. that people love and are used to. But it's Wi-Fi, so it's essentially an Internet of Things device that attaches to their servers over your Wi-Fi connection. You are remotely controlling their cloud video that will help game. With latency. Yeah. I, I, you know, using a separate session or whatever the term is exactly in terms of having that link back to the mainframe. Yeah. They did. It's going to be cool. Oh man, they, you know, and I think probably the, the, the most exciting thing for me is, is somebody who like, okay, it's, it's 12 o'clock at night. Everybody's asleep. I can go play some rocket league. And then I spend like, you know, on my, my, you know, 1800 X beast of a computer, uh, that is staggeringly fast with 32 gigabytes of memory and a you know a 100 megabit per second up down connection. I'm waiting for several minutes while you know the thing boots and the instantaneous kind of booting that they're promising or or the instantaneous launch of the game. Instant um, gratification. Uh, their description of yeah. their you could say their their, their million dollar scheme for this really was the yeah. tie in with things like YouTube where watching people play video games is a huge pastime now. And that ability to say, like, if, say, the content creator wanted to, it's like, jump into my game right now. Even if you didn't own it, you can click this one button, instant install, jump right in, start going, or you're playing a game and... I would love to be able to record this at 4K and then, mm-hmm. oh, but there's no way my computer can handle that. And all of this can be done on the back end. And granted, it's a huge tie-in for other things, Google. But at the same point, <laughs> surely you just, you, you need a, you need some deep pockets to pull this off successfully. Yeah. And I cannot wait to see it well, actually they, I launch. Mean, they have the money. I mean, they were talking about, they've got fiber strung everywhere. They're saying like, they're going to launch with 7,500 edge nodes or basically individual locations scattered around 200 countries. They say they're going to, like you mentioned before, 4K HDR, 60 frames per second with surround sound when they launch, which is pretty impressive. We have no idea when it's going to launch and we have no idea what it's going to cost. We know there's Ubisoft and, and like Doom, 
We don't know what other game partners they have. I know Microsoft and Amazon are working on similar servers, servers, services. I'm not leaving my Steam account anytime soon. But no. At the same point. And I'm looking at Steam's game stats right now, actually. They hit about 15 million a day <laughs> at their peak. Looks like peak time is right around 9 a.m. I don't know. <laughs> Something about 9 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. You know, anyway. The other thing that was announced in the gaming world is Apple Arcade, which is essentially Netflix for games for your iOS, Mac, or Apple TV. They're going to have like 100, more than 100 games, they said, uh, exclusive to iOS slash Mac slash Apple TV. And these are going to be apps you install from the App Store. This is not a streaming service. But it's funny to watch all these companies start to be like, oh, that's right. There's money in the banana stand. I mean, there's money in gaming. Yeah. Let's, let's go let's go make some money on gaming. Heck yeah. So the Apple TV announcement was really bizarre. Um, I didn't pay attention to it at all. I, I did because I, I've I've spent so much of you know my adult life watching you know, television via every generation of Apple TV. Um, I am using an Apple tablet. Yeah. For testing and other things, but this is, I mean, TVOS is a little I different. I mean, the the big announcement for me is this May they're going to change. You, you open up Apple TV and it's not like opening up your cell phone, whether it's Android or iOS. You know, iOS Billion or, icons? Yeah, lots of icons. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, Netflix is in the upper left-hand corner, you know, PBS is in the upper right-hand corner. Then there's like HBO and iTunes and iMovies. And, and It was always harder to condense that list down right. than I had liked. It's doable, but you have to jump through a few menus to find the right spot to right. get everything looking just the way you want. Whereas with something like my Roku, man, you can drag and drop everything around and remove everything and clean it up just the They've way you want. They've gotten a I little like better with the Apple TV interface. The, 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 it's there. It just was always kind of buried. Well, their goal is to kind of make it easier. They're going content-centric, essentially, in May with the Apple TV app. And when you when you look at the, the Apple TV app kind of preview on on their web page you know the idea is you know watch now movies television shows sports kids library where you're still going to have all your services but they want to make how you watch it considerably less important than that you be able to find it and you know i i will say doing like you know voice search on siri and apple tv they've gotten very very good about oh you know you own this on you know, you have this on this channel or this, oh, good. you know, yeah, you, you have it on HBO, you so have you, it on Showtime. If you are in the Apple ecosystem, you generally are getting pretty good advice from their digital assistants. Which is non-trivial. No, um, not at all. Because I remember when, when the first... Fire uh, hose of crap we have available. Oh. It's nice to know where, hey, what's the thing I already own <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I know I want to watch? It don't make me go <laughs> jump through hoops or let alone... Or don't tell me to buy something that I can get for again, free. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was the big announcement was the Apple TV Plus, which is, you know, Spielberg was there, Oprah was there, um, Reese Witherspoon was there, a whole bunch of other people were there. And, you know, we know there's going to be Apple content this fall, like Apple's paying for content. We don't know what it's going to cost. We don't know how, we don't know, if, is, is it a flat fee? Is it a la carte? Apple's going to finally jump in in the way they've we've heard rumors about for 7,000 years, where just like Amazon and just like Netflix and just like lots of other places, they're going to be generating their own series. They have a ton of money. They certainly have the money to be able to do this. Uh, the other thing is Apple TV apps going to be coming to the Roku and other places, which I thought was a good move for them. Hey, it looks like your Apple TV will also support PlayStation View. If you would like to add. <laughs> good to know. And DirecTV Now and Spectrum. Oh my goodness. It's an interesting list. And you know what? 
given how good they are at making things seamless with their own products and services. Yeah. I, when it works, it's fantastic. We'll see. We'll see. You know. Will it replace my Netflix anytime soon? It's like, God, maybe. <laughs> yeah, see, that's weird, though. It's like, would it replace my Roku anytime soon? Would be the better, I think. The well, we had, I mean, I literally had a first-generation Apple but TV. But I'm, I'm just a different user. I'm not in Apple's right. sphere of stuff. Yeah, I, I... Not nearly as much as many people I know. <laughs> so. Robert stares across the table. No, no. I mean, it's lots of good hardware. I, I've owned Apple hardware. I still I do. I actually miss my iPhone at this point. I don't. I've I, had... I, I uh, do not miss that. My 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 inexpensive Android phone is has lots of small but irritating issues. You were thinking about a lot about calibration we were talking the other day. We uh, did. I went through... Somebody asked me for a list of basically what kind of gear am I using. One thing I didn't get into was just effectively, what am I doing with all right. that gear? And it, effectively, when it comes down to when I tell people I'm calibrating a TV, they assume you're going to make some adjustment. Hopefully, right. you think you're going to make some adjustment to the picture quality related to the color. But uh, just the one quick thing to point out is one of the biggest adjustments you make to any display device is the color of white or mixing. And on TVs and all display devices we look at, white is effectively red, blue, and green subpixels all on at 100%, blending together to create right. the white light you then see. Mixing red, blue, and green gives you white. It's super critical that that white be a neutral shade. And there is a specific shade of white that is the standard used in video production, be it Rec. 709, standard dynamic range, or high dynamic range. They both actually use the same white point. And it's very critical then to use the available controls within the TV to make that gray as neutral as possible. And the big deal is, is that say your white point, all, you, you take mm -hmm. measurements of all your shades of gray and they're all slightly trending a little toward red. There's a little too much red in every one of those shades. If you looked at the color representation, say you just, you plot a random sample of colors within the color space uh, for testing, uh, different shades and things like that, you'll find that all of those colors then would be mixed slightly toward red. So by simply bringing that white point, what the TV assumes neutral is right. right on target it generally brings all other color rendering more closely to being on target as well and that's that's the single biggest thing i do the controls i actually access that adjustment are called the white balance controls on many tvs and typically there is a two-point adjustment uh, one that handles the darker grays and one that handles the lighter grays. These controls are typically broken up into red, blue, and green specific controls for each one of those points. More and more TVs are incorporating multi-point white balance where you can do 10, 20, or more points. Instead of having just two points for dark and light, you can have a more granular look at the whole scale and to see like, oh, you know what? Right at 30%, it was a little bit off. I can make an adjustment just right there. That effectively is the biggest thing I'm doing in addition to just making sure all the video processing and other characteristics are correct as well. The big one, it really is a white balance. A lot of people can buy relatively affordable equipment to do this with themselves, if that's something you're interested in. There are devices out there in about the $200 range, $250 range. I want to say there's a new spider colorimeter out there as well, which I used to just avoid those like the plague, but I'll have to take a look at this new one they just popped up with. Otherwise, X-Rite has a really nice $250 kit that allows you, with the software included and the meter, to be able to do 
any of these white balance adjustments. So the two point would be the easiest to start with and to get that nailed if that's something that's important to you. And typically you're doing that in a light controlled environment and with a preset that's already kind of close, something like your movie or cinema preset. A calibrated picture preset is really made to be viewed in a light controlled environment. If that's not the case, right. if, if there are lots of windows and lights on, then you generally want a picture with a little extra color in it. And that's where those other presets come in handy. And I've talked about this a million times, but something like your standard and not your vivid or dynamic preset, that's taking things a little too far, but that standard or natural style preset can be a nice daytime mode compared to the movie mode that's typically closer to that mm -hmm. that specific shade of gray you're it's looking movie, at. Because the movie mode, in many cases, especially for sporting events, might be a little too dim. It just depends room. on room lighting. In a dark okay. room, it's ideal. It gives you the most accurate, nice color, but... As soon as you've got some lights on or during the day when that picture's going to look more washed out and muted than it than it should, that's where you then want to add a little more backlight, add a little extra color, pump it up a little bit. No matter what you're doing, though, please keep the sharpness setting at zero and then only turn it up a little bit, no more than 10% if you have to. Do you turn up noise reduction at all or do you try to avoid that as much as possible? I keep it off, generally, right. unless unless you're looking at content that's just chunky and it needs help mm -hmm. uh, sometimes streaming sources can get blocky and mpeg noise reduction can help with that mm -hmm. or if you're looking at things that were shot on film and in very dark scenes where they just gated the camera wide open and there's all sorts of noise and things in the background right if the noise becomes a distraction and it's taking you out of the moment from watching it then i'll enable it but generally leave it off because there is a chance that any form of noise reduction can slightly blur the picture Oh my goodness! Part of the one of the ways of hiding noise. It's and been interesting for me because I, I recently found out about Project 4K77. It is a bunch of enthusiasts, uh, and I'll I'll talk about this a little bit more next week. But a bunch of enthusiasts got a hold of an original print of A New Hope, the first Star Wars. Or I said, well, the fourth episode, the first movie. They decided like we want the thing we saw in the theater as children. And they did a telecine and cleaned it up and were manually correcting stuff. The website is thestarwarstrilogy.com. I really think uh, it's, it, I'll talk about it, like I said, more next week, but it is amazing because of all the effort they put into it. But they talk about sort of what happened to the history and how they did this. And they have two versions of it that they distribute, uh, or, th or there's like three or four out there, but there's a 1080p version, a 4K version, and then there's versions both with and without noise reduction. It's interesting, especially because when you when you go into the kind of descriptions on the first page, where they're like, you know, the FAQs, is this an upscale? No, 97% of Project 4K77 is from a single original 1977 35 millimeter Technicolor release print, scanned at 4K, cleaned at 4K, and rendered at 4K. You know, this is the, the group that did the silver screen edition uh, a few years ago. They're not film restoration professionals. They're Star Wars fans. It's I interesting... Oh, go ahead. I'm just, for noise reduction, yeah. that is something that is almost a dark art. It, it is, if it's done wrong, it takes yeah. away. I see so many Blu-ray movies where I've seen previous sources that clearly when it made it to the, throughout the workflow or whatever, that got it to that Blu-ray, some noise reduction took place. Right. And for whatever reason, and I've seen that with certain Sony pictures where Sony streaming service got it to you in a format. Right. When, when they used to do 4K streaming back in the day to a hard drive right. you know, on a set-top box you had, 
those would look awfully pristine looking. And, right. and they had still had film grain and everything in there natural. It looked natural, though. Right. And it wasn't distracting. But then I saw the same movie on a Blu-ray release a couple, like a couple weeks later or a couple months later. And it was dramatic of how much it had changed the look of the movie just by nuking that, that fine film grain. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming with something like, and you're mentioning uh, IMAX in general, but The Dark Knight's getting its re-release on IMAX for oh, its wow. 80th for the 80th birthday of Batman. Those are all going through the hand fine tuning and bidding uh being re redone up for is it 60 or 70 millimeter presentation and that's just oh that's pretty wild to If you like those movies that that's coming up real soon. Uh, I want to oh say goodness. like this month. The movie that comes to mind for sort of the worst digital noise reduction is they they removed all the grain from the original Blu-ray release of Patton to the point where somebody, one of the reviewers, their their comment was like, they have enhanced this so much, it is cartoon-like. It's funny because one of the things those 4K77 people went out is these, these are from films and film has grain and removing the grain changes the experience. The it example I just provided was, was with a newer movie, uh, Looper. I don't think that was shot on film. That was probably shot digitally. That was a movie where it was just dramatically different by the time it right. made it to disc and, and disappointing a little bit too. It's like, ooh, you guys overdid something here. Undo, undo. Looper 2012 shot on Canon US 7D camera, Panavision, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Shot on what.com if you want to get eh. really nerdy. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to the Dark Knight trilogy may get me to go into an IMAX theater and check that out. It's only for a limited run, though, but it turns out, of course, the IMAX theater in San Francisco is going to have it. I think that's the closest one to me yeah, in Looper's, California. Looper's a fun movie. Yeah, Panavision, Panaflexes, and uh, and some stuff they use in the US 7D for that one. Very cool. Avengers Endgame is, is going to be... We saw Captain Marvel in a movie theater, which is fantastic. Nice. Make MKV still works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was messing with this the other day. Uh, it's been around for a while. It's a great tool for archiving any disc you can throw at it. Mm-hmm. And one of the latest features is the ability to handle the 4K ultra high def discs. It has required specific firmware on specific drives, number one, to properly read these discs. They had to be, I want to say 4K friendly in a sense. Basically, a lot of the drives that were compatible with the right. M disc format for archival discs ended up being compatible with this as well. And the Make MKV site has a list of specifically what drives we're talking about. The other half of it was having to either generate or create or find the keys for individual movies and to kind of hunt and peck and figure out which version of the disc you had, which key did it require to decrypt it, Mm -hmm. or to just bypass the encryption to get it off there. All of that has been cleaned up quite nicely as of late with a new system that basically creates a, a virtual drive that allows a specific type of firmware with a compatible drive to then just read these discs and dump them right off and it doesn't require any screwing around. If you want to buy the app, it's like 50 bucks, but they provide a free version with a free key right on their website. Oh, wow. Try it out for as many times as you're willing to reinstall it every month. Uh, (laughs) And if you're looking for a way to just dump a disc and go through it and find the biggest file and copy that off and do your magic with it. Or if you just want to archive the content you own onto a hard drive and have that playable. I was having some fun. I was literally just dumping off. Uh, I tried it with a couple ultra high-def Blu-rays. Also tried it with a, just a regular Blu-ray to right. just A-B it to see how easy it was to do file playback. Of course, my Roku with the raw files off the disk 
did not like it. My Samsung TV's built-in stupid player, though. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it had no problem. It even played. It played it in full HDR, 4K. Beautiful. It was looking good. It's nice when it looks good. So, if you are interested in creating your own server at home, full of all the movies you own, with all of your discs properly secured elsewhere, there are tools out there that continue to make this process relatively easy, at least in terms of getting the data off of a disc. I will say the dump, I think I did, uh, what was it? I did the Matrix in 4K, just as a quick test. That was, I want to say a 63, 64 gig folder just for the movie. There's a lot of data. Just keep that in mind. These are large files. (laughs) To deal with. You will and fill your NAS alarmingly quickly. I want to say, too, the other thing I need to test real quick, too, is dropping, uh, have MKV just drop the movie right into an MKV file. Right. Or wrap it up in that in that container file, because many TVs and other devices are compatible with that. I'll do a little more experimenting. But if you have the need to rip a disc, that's an easy way to do it. And they've been around forever. And it's got a good forum with lots of interesting quirks about the nitty gritty of discs. <laughs> how they're created, how they're protected, and where the two meet. And please, don't rent movies and rip them. That's just, that's bad. I'm quite pleased I picked up one of those quote-unquote friendly drives not too long ago. <laughs> for, for people who still own physical desktop workstations that can actually slip an optical drive into. <laughs> uh, I still have the Rip Monster. I have actually three I love my desktops uh, at my desk right now. I'm itching to build a new box. I just want something smaller. I don't need quite the gargantuan. <laughs> tower systems of old. Yeah, I've got one gargantuan tower, one medium tower, the Rip Monster, which is a tower, and then uh, a micro ITX thing the size of an old phone book. That's pretty amazing. Um, several folks have asked for a Blu-ray player recommendation. Oppo's gone. Samsung's leaving the business. We talked about a couple last week. I yeah. Basically, I think I brought up Sony and LG. The one I forgot to mention, though, was freaking Panasonic. Yeah. If I could no longer buy Oppo, I'm personally looking right to Panasonic. Specifically, their higher-end players have a really neat function that is something I would like to experiment with a little bit more. What it can do is do the tone mapping in real time, retone map a movie to the specific brightness of your particular display device. So when you're dealing with movies that are authored at 4,000 nits or 700 nits or somewhere in the middle or up to 10,000 nits with the current standard, if your TV can't support that, it's going to do its own tone mapping anyway. But what would be nice is to have a little extra control over that or in the case of, say, a projector where you can figure out exactly what your peak detail limit is and then just have the player then on the fly author that content specifically for your display device to give you that roll off right at where you hit peak bright on your display. Your peak bright details just aren't completely washed out or it may be doing something you didn't want it to do. Or for TVs that are kind of set up for one specific standard, Right. there are a lot of TVs out there, they target a thousand nits. That's like the standard they're at. So they're dealing with all this different content at different mastering levels and having to redo that on the fly, this then allows the player then to take over those duties and to fix it for either what you eyeball or what you measure in terms of what the display is actually doing. That's pretty neat. They're not generally the cheapest models out there, but man, Panasonic is part of some of the best filmmaking and authoring groups in Hollywood, and they make (laughs) awfully good hardware. I'm proud to throw out that as just a recommendation. If you're looking for a higher-end Blu-ray player that supports now, thankfully... Dolby Vision as well. That's where I'd go. I'm laughing because I've owned two or three Sony players at this point. I haven't upgraded them because 
I needed to have upgraded them because they've died. And I'm usually buying whatever is fairly inexpensive at Costco or wherever. Playing around with a more expensive Blu-ray player, I was like, oh, it seems like the processing, the, the discs may not load that much faster, if at all. Um, but everything else seems to move a bit faster. You and I talked offline a while ago. The Oppo does some pretty amazing things from a video file standpoint or from an audio file standpoint. But do you you know, are people going to recognize the difference? Maybe with that Panasonic, yes, but there's not going to be a whole lot of differences between the HD, as long as you, you know, aren't trying to play 4K discs on a 1080p, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, All device, things being but, equal, but are there huge gonna, differences? There's not, yeah, there's not really huge differences between the there Sony, the be. Samsung. Yeah. Unless you're looking for specific disc format support as well. Like you want to make sure if you have a Dolby Vision TV and you plan to buy a Dolby Vision disc. Right that you have a Dolby Vision player to go with that. Beyond that, though, technically there shouldn't be, but I've seen enough weirdness in just default settings on these players to sometimes it seems like Panasonic gets it right more often than not, and they include some pretty high-end stuff. However, uh, for just saving some money, right? I've often seen just either, there are plenty of upscaling Blu-ray players out there, just regular Blu-ray players for well under 100 bucks, and, and probably even cheaper. Blu-ray players should not cost much at this point. It's when you get into the 4K HDR support. You can pick up a Blu-ray player. It's uh, 70 bucks for a Samsung Blu-ray player on Amazon right now. Sony's got reliability issues, I think, with their cheap models. Be uh, careful, too. It'll often They often use 4K in these sales, and you got to make sure it's just not an upscaling regular Blu-ray player. It actually right. has to say it supports 4K UHD playback of those discs. Otherwise, you'll drop that disc in there and it'll like, I don't know what this is. And LG's got a pretty good rep at this point. you know. And when you look at the Google ratings, LG tends to have a lot fewer issues than Sony does. I'm trying to think, does Panasonic even sell their Blu-ray players? That's the other question, too. I don't believe they sell them as much in the U.S. as okay. I remember. Ever since they pulled out of the TV market, I know they're available in Europe. And it kind of bums me out that they're not more available here but hopefully that'll change this year there are certain things about their players that i truly do love <laughs> one player to rule them all so to speak got a great question from chris he emailed after listening to music on earbuds bluetooth speakers 90 dollars bose computer speakers and grado sr60e headphones for the last 15 years i ponied up for a pair of elac debut 2.0 b6.2s Love those speakers. They're in my living room right now. And hooked them up to the Sansui integrated amp I bought within a month of my wedding day back in 1972. I also love that. Feeding it 320K audio from the audio output jack of my 2015 spec MacBook Pro Retina. Mmm, good. The internets, however, have infected me with the idea that I might be missing the best part of my music unless I buy an external DAC. I'd love to hear your sense of this question. All the best. Chris. Maybe an external amp I think would be more important, wouldn't it? Well, no. Because you could just do the decoding on the computer or... The audio is going from his MacBook to the audio output on the MacBook to a, you know, a headphone jack to an RCA input on the back of uh, the Sansui. And, gotcha. Uh, gotta, gotta go analog. Gotta go analog. He, right, At some gotta point. Get, yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I probably own somewhere in the neighborhood of nine DACs. Because I've had to buy a couple of them to review. You know, the Chromecast Audio is a DAC. I've got three generations of Dragonfly DACs. I have, because uh, you know, I, I bought them all for testing. My personal favorite DACs right now are AKM DACs. If you want to spend a lot of time really 
kind of bending your mind around some stuff that may be alarmingly arcane is looking at Audio Science Review. There it is. You know, and the gentleman behind Audio Science Review has your basic $40,000 worth of audio testing equipment. And he tests DACs and he tests headphone amps. He's starting to do other amplifiers. And I take away a lot from that because case in point, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of JDS Labs. I bought a bunch of their stuff. You know, I, I did some early testing for them on the Atom headphone amplifier. You know, that $99 Atom headphone amplifier is performing as well or better than anything else that's made. Now, you can argue whether or not, you know, somebody's $6,000 headphone amplifier is better, but it's, it's not $5,900 better. And I bring that up because, you know, I'm testing a, a pair of $1,100 powered speakers that are designed for use in the living room or the bedroom or on your desktop. That's an expensive set of speakers from one of the best manufacturers, you know, of speakers on the planet. And this $99 headphone amp does not pick up noise from my monitor, but the $1,100 speakers pick up noise from my monitor so that when I'm paused in between songs or I'm not listening to something, I hear my speakers saying. It is incredibly annoying. It took me three days to finally realize that it was the left speaker. And if I pulled the power cord out, the noise went away. I own a DAC that will pick up that noise from that monitor. This is an extreme edge case because one, it's a big monitor and it's loud and it's a very small desk. And I would think that an external DAC would be the way to go. Yeah. To well, to hopefully lose a cable or keep it digital as long as you can until you either get it to your headphone amplifier or if you're using the, I don't know if he's using the Samsui for anything other than the Elax. Well, yeah. anyway, part of what I was, I was kind of getting in the digital analog converter inside your MacBook is a lot better probably than the internet thinks it is. And I will also say having been ears on probably certainly more than 50 DACs slash headphone DACs slash powered speakers with DACs inside of them slash preamps with DACs slash integrated amps with DACs. I've, I've probably heard at this point upwards of 50 or 70 DACs. More often than not, if you test them properly, which is matching the levels so that, you know, let's say, you know, 200 hertz or a thousand hertz where they're all at the same level of dB. And this is actually critical. When you're A-B testing things, if something sounds louder, your brain tells you that that's the better thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that is that is psychoacoustics. That is lab tested. That is that is humanity. Does so, Chris need a DAC? That's my question. Yeah. And <laughs> I, probably I, I, not. Sorry. I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm tying this into larger issues I'm having with the way audio is marketed uh, for his setup. To he's using all sorts of gear. My first, my first thought is is probably not. If you like what you have, don't fix it. My secondary thought is if you want to stream music from your phone, there's a lot of interesting ways to get you know a device that will get stream the information. I mean, like one, if it works. Don't fix it. You know what I mean? You got a 72 cent Sui amp. That thing's not world class, but it's really, really good. People pay a lot of money for those things because they're big and they're shiny and they weigh 33 pounds. I don't know. I think headphone jacks on notebooks though, and I don't care who makes it. Yeah. Um, I'm less inclined to steer someone that way than I would Okay. for an affordable DAC yeah, or and, in a DAC amp of well, some kind. Well, part of it's Depending like, on what you're doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's... Is so, it just for the headphones or is this to run all your audio also to the amp? I'm assuming to the amp. JDS Labs makes uh, what they call the OL DAC, which sells for uh, $99. 
And I have a Chromecast audio, which sadly is no longer sold, running into that OL DAC. And for 140 bucks, I got a pretty badass way to turn an amplifier I had into a streaming device. So instead of having like, I love Masonos, but having my badass ELAC speakers powered by a 100 watt per channel amp powered by my AKM DAC is pretty ninja. Um, I think that's good advice. I would go cheap if you are going to buy the DAC. Get a good one, but don't spend arm and a leg on it and just yeah. A-B it. Because if you don't hear the difference with a decent external DAC, I'd be less inclined to say spend any more or I have a lot keep of, it just the way you got it. I have a lot of love for JDS Labs OL DAC. I have a lot of love for the EL DAC. I have a lot of love for um, the uh, AudioQuest Dragonfly. You could put Volumio on a Raspberry Pi, plug a, an AudioQuest Dragonfly into that, and then you could stream stuff to your Sansui amplifier through that. I'm now eyeballing the uh, the headphone jack on my laptop here with its, <laughs> with its audio by Ice Power, Bang & Olufsen technology. Well, Ice Power is actually interesting I, that, technology. Suddenly I'm How like, maybe you, I should actually listen to this and compare it to my own should. damn DAC. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can A-B this on my own and just to well, see, maybe I'm poo-pooing notebooks too much here, but... I mean, some notebooks are horrendous. For example, there was, I had a an LG... It's the noise thing that always got me. It's like, right. it seemed like there was always something and I'm hearing it, and right. maybe it's less of an issue nowadays. The yeah. MacBooks, I think, were better engineered for audio than a lot of the PCs were for a lot of years. Um, I, you know, the 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 question, the short is, is I would say experiment with a DAC because at this point you've upgraded your speakers in a huge way. Your amplification should be solid. The DAC may reveal flaws in the amplification or noise in the amplification. If you turn the volume up on your integrated amplifier and you hear anything, you know, you may want to start. If you want to get nerding out, I would probably get something that amplifies the signal going into it without making any noise first. If the internet slings a lot of stuff, bull stuff. I will do some experimenting. See uh, if I can around come up with DAX. the answer. I've spent a lot of time talking to an engineer yeah. who designs DAX for a living. And the three things that kind of keep coming up is a lot of stuff that people test for with $40,000 worth of audio precision gear is far beyond the ranges of human hearing. Right. Like you cannot hear these differences. Like negative 130 to a negative, negative 135 dB. Like jitter basically is no longer audible on most devices. Now you can have a really, you can take a nice DAC, the actual physical chip itself and do a crappy job of engineering it and make it sound like crap. But the stuff I've mentioned is all stuff that sounds fantastic. People are obsessed like it's got Burr Brown, you know, but it, there's there's all these DACs that people kind of go, eh. And there's some pretty flawless products that are built around these DACs that are not considered super cool guy audiophile DACs. So, you know, go to JDS Labs, get an AudioQuest Dragonfly, buy it from someplace you can return it if you don't like it. And, you know, understand that when you plug that thing in, you're going to have two reactions. And one of them is going to be like, I bought a cool thing and it's cool. And this sounds a thousand percent better than it did before. And that's kind of biased conception. Or, you know, it may legitimately sound a thousand percent better and you're really excited, but you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like wander off on this. I, <laughs> I, I am frustrated by people on the internet who tell you your stuff is crap because you didn't spend as much on it as they did. No, uh, this, this is an, an yeah. eclectic list of gear, and but I'd like to see the uh, topology of how this is all connected together. But oh, however. RCA cable coming. It's it's a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack to RCA cable running from the laptop into the back of the into the auxiliary input on the Sansui. That might sound great. Because I've got a I, I got a free Yamaha amplifier of approximately the same vintage. Vintage with a set of clip speakers I bought for a couple hundred bucks a couple years ago. I was laughing because somebody's like, I need to buy an amp. And I'm like, great. 
go go on Craigslist and find a Denon or Marantz. Yeah. You're like a five-year-old AVR that nobody wants because it won't do all the cool new audio stuff or it won't do 4K and use that for stereo. But it's not, no, it's not super elite and it's not awesome and it, it doesn't benchmark, but it's going to do the job for your stereo speakers and it's going to cost you nothing. Got it. Check out AudioQuest Dragonfly, JDS Labs, uh, EL DAC, that's 250 That's pretty fancy. The OL DAC sounds really good. That's $99. I'm looking for some more reasonable recommendation because there's a lot of $2,000 DACs that aren't that much better than a $200 DAC. And if you're blind A-B I testing, know. it may be impossible to tell which one is which for a lot of people. And for PC use, I'm looking for just an external audio device, really. Yeah. Just a DAC. That's all I need. Or ideally something that can also drive a pair of headphones. Yeah. Part of why I, I was getting complicated on this is because... There's devices that will do this. Once you stop connecting the computer directly to your integrated amplifier, then it's like, oh, can I have a device that I can stream my music at full my 320k files to? That's when doing something, you know, if you're in, if you're trying to do it cheap, then doing a Raspberry Pi with an outboard DAC with you know free Volumio or Rune Labs code gets really really interesting. Rune Labs, which is not free, Volumio, which is free and open source. In any case. Robert's making the we have to go face because <laughs> no. I am I have turned a simple thirty second answer into a nine and a half minute uh, exposition of we're well of, over of an hour now. <laughs> I'll stop now. Oh my goodness. I can't wait to see Avengers Endgame. Uh, if you haven't seen it on Netflix, if you're a fan of the Coen brothers, about the Buster Scruggs is awesome. Captain Marvel was awesome. And if you're a fan of Samuel L. Jackson, which I am, he has a fantastic interview in Esquire that came out around the Captain Marvel launch that uh, if you enjoy the Samuel L. Jackson experience, uh, you should experience Samuel L. Jackson Heck in yeah. that Esquire interview. Always a fan. Oh my goodness. You've been listening to AV Excel, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are in search of audio and visual excellence we love home theater we love stereo we love headphones we mostly want you to work within your budget to have a more amazing experience and hey if you haven't sat down to listen to an entire album do it and if you normally watch your favorite movies or new movies with a laptop on just close the laptop sink yourself in enjoy the fact that you've got surround sound and a big fat high resolution screen and embrace an entertainment experience that's vastly better than anything your parents had which is a good thing hey, notebook and headphones that works too it does so does a phone uh, and, and earbuds in bed but I will say movies are a lot better on a 100 inch projection screen than they are on, on the phone especially calibrated well phones are pretty calibrated nowadays TVs no PC monitors way off what a oh. mess everyone needs to <laughs> everyone needs the computer monitor checked I'm not going to even get into that. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I'm Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.